It's a sadly common phrase in our current broken culture. We hear it almost every night on the news. We just want justice. Or we only want to see justice done. And there's certainly some level of horizontal, person-to-person conflict resolution that must occur if we are to survive as a civil society. There is restitution, for instance, when property has been violated. There is setting the record straight when lies have been told. These kinds of resolutions of cases can keep bad situations from getting worse, but these corrections never fully restore lost good. When an evil has occurred, no matter what kind of correction is made, that correction does not, cannot, fully ever put things right, not completely right. When it comes to the deforming or diminishing of life, or certainly the destroying of of life, conflict resolution is a meaningless idea. Here I'm referring not to human struggles in relationships where we accidentally or on purpose dishonor or even injure one another, I'm now referring to what we have come to call horrendous evils, where not only has damage been done, but it's been done in a way that is against all reason, a violation of all that is human. Examples of what I'm talking about abound, so I don't need to bruise your imagination with examples. You know all too well what I mean. And these examples seem to have become far more common in the 20th and now the 21st centuries than in all previous history combined. When in the midst of such conflicts we hear the cry for justice, what we often, though not always, are hearing is not the cry for justice, but really just the cry for revenge. I know because I've heard it come out of my own mouth. Many, even Christians, think the concept of an an eye for an eye is a biblical idea meant to provide just that, justice, we say. Justice is a balancing of the scales, we think. So, it's justice if you cost me an eye for me to then knock out your eye to balance the scales. Gandhi rightly pointed out that if that's how justice is done, we will all end up being half blind. Now, Gandhi was not trying to correct the Bible. He was correcting people's wrong understanding of it. An eye for an eye justice was not offered in Scripture as a means of balancing anything. The real meaning of the concept is only an eye for an eye and no more. The goal of all punishment in Scripture was to bring repentance and change in behavior, not mere retribution. In ancient cultures, the practice was not a mere eye for an eye, but you you blind me and I cut off your head. You accidentally kill my brother, so we will on purpose destroy your village. Scripture was seeking to put a reasonable lid on such unreasonable vengeance, done in the name of justice by limiting what can be done in the name of balancing the books. 
but this was never seen in Israel as full justice. By the way, no records exist of any Jew ever knocking out someone else's eye because they had had an optical accident. Such conflicts were settled by financial remuneration, usually. Still, the false idea has remained in most folks' minds that doing justice is a matter of mathematical equations. Our court system is symbolized by a blind woman holding a set of balanced scales. This symbol comes down to us from ancient previous civilizations. And there's much right in that symbol if you take time to study the ancient meanings behind them. But ultimately, as true as some aspects are, this symbolism still falls short. The biblical meaning of justice is not ever a simple matter of bookkeeping. The word for justice and righteousness are nearly exactly the same in Hebrew. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is rescue from and the putting right of all that is wrong. And only God, therefore, can bring righteousness. Only God can ultimately provide justice. And that means no human court, no human arbiter or judge can ever achieve justice. Now, we may stop escalating tensions in some cases. We may contain wrong behaviors. We may even punish evil deeds. But in all those actions, we've only hindered further disintegration or maybe educated a fool to be wiser. And that's a good thing, but it's not righteousness. And even where we have fully reversed wrong actions, we cannot ever make things fully right again. Human justice, even scripturally applied, with all the right motives, cannot restore to its original pristine condition any relationship or state of being that has been marred by injustice. Now this statement makes us somewhat angry because we know it's true. And that makes us feel a bit hopeless in the face of evil. But if it is true, then what does that leave us with? I mean, does it mean that there can never be any real justice in the universe? Does it mean that the best we can ever hope to achieve is to live with a canvas of goodness that was it's going to be eternally defaced by horrendous evils? Even if the passing of time has distanced us from them, does the passing of time mend evil? We, we, we know it doesn't. Nations with long memories keep bitter rivalries going and acts of revenge we see in Bosnia and Northern Ireland and the Middle East or in our own families maybe are never mended by the passing of time. So when we look at existence, will we see the semi-ruined, semi-restored landscape of creation's new normal and call that good? Is true goodness gone forever and nothing remaining but a bad repair job? It is a repair job, but it's a bad one. Repaired, even healed, is not the same as original, pristine goodness. The repair job itself may be good, but it is not a fully restored good. The phrase, just as if it never happened, 
may apply to the good work of an auto body shop or a damage restoration company like ServPro, but not to the moral universe. This intrusion has brought a cancer into reality. What can be done? On the human level, nothing. We can make the horrors, but we cannot ever fix them much less make it as if it never happened. So is the creator who calls his creation good and then later very good, just left now with an everlasting ugliness on his intended original beauty? Is it only cosmetically improved by whatever cosmetic work we can do and then underneath the scars remain? Is dying and going to heaven just an evacuation from the wreckage of earth into a disembodied lesser realm? And when it's all over, do we limp into heaven, torn and twisted, wearing a supposed robe of righteousness, which is a cover that only hides our true ugliness with what is called a legal fiction? Is the robe we wear in heaven then only a masquerade costume? a band-aid covering everlasting relics of wrong. God is holy. What does that mean? It's a linguistic accident that in English the word whole, W-H-O-L-E, and holy, H-O-L-Y, not only sound alike, but are directly connected. To be whole is to be perfect without blemish, or in a certain sense, holy. Holiness is wholeness. It's not a repaired wholeness as of something that was broken and was then mended. We don't call that whole, we just call that mended. Wholeness is without need of repair. It is whole. Or in this sense, it is holy, perfectly complete in itself, not in need of anything from the outside to complete it. Now, non-English speakers who are trying to learn the language must be ready to pull their hair out when they have to encounter words like this. And then you add to that the word whole, H-O-L-E, and find out that it sounds exactly like the word W-H-O-L-E and means the total opposite but we won't address the frustrations here that they must be feeling. But a study of the words W-H-O-L-E, H-O-L-Y, and H-O-L-E is worth your time if you ever have time to do it. Simplistic as it may seem, let's take a minute to think about these words. To be holy, H-O-L-Y, is to be complete. And not complete in the sense of being made whole, but of not needing to be made whole, because to be whole is to be already perfect. It is right that the words perfect can be understood as mature, and that implies a process towards an unreached goal, but still, even in that idea, a, quote, perfect bud is complete in what it is meant to be at the stage that it's in. It's not yet a perfect flower, but as a bud, it is complete and perfect. Now, this will explain, to some degree, 
an otherwise strange tendency in New Testament to refer to things as being more perfect. How can anything that is perfect be more perfect? Only if the word perfect is understood as a progressive movement toward a final goal of total perfection can you use that term. But Jesus told us to be perfect as your Father in heaven is already perfect. Now, how is the Father perfect? Well, he's already complete in himself. He didn't progress there. He is fully and completely in himself, whole, perfect, holy. Jesus calls God Holy Father. In other mouths, that phrase can have various meanings depending on the religious milieu they are formed in. But when Jesus says it, we are required by the very weight of who he is to try to understand it better. For in his mouth, it's not a religious phrase or a subordinated slavish genuflection. This is the perfect Son of God, Son of Man, speaking to the most intimate, precious relationship there is. Jesus calls him Holy Father. This is so precious and rich with meaning that I'm tempted to go off into just that question and forget all else that we've been introducing here, but For the sake of clarity, let's lay aside the many treasured hidden meanings in Jesus' words to his Father and examine just one question. Of all that God's holiness implies, what could it, in reference to the nature of deformity of the universe, what could it mean? What could it mean in our inability to achieve real justice? when we say God is holy. The word holy has, like so many other words in religion, taken on baggage from human misunderstandings that hinder our understanding. In some sad cases, God's holiness is merely his superior, legalistic, angry attitude towards, quote, sinners. It conjures in many people's minds an image of fire and brimstone, lightning bolts coming down from the hand of a raging Zeus or a Wizard of Oz. Then the word sinner also is deformed from its clearer meaning. We think it means one who has broken the rules and is the target of the holy lightning bolts. But the idea of sin is far, far denser and more tragic than something so grammar schoolish as you broke the rules and now you're going to get it. Holiness is far more majestic and joyous than the gloomy religious shroud we've placed around it. It should arouse a vision of the glory of unapproachable light in our imaginations rather than the guilt-ridden moralism that it seems to do. So a better understanding of the word holy will automatically provide a far more accurate understanding of the word sin. When we see a glimpse of true holiness, then up against that holiness, our sinfulness does not merely appear as dingy gray, but it becomes black 
with horror. To a holy mind, it should awaken that kind of response. The word sin is far more terrible than mere rule-breaking. If holiness is that which is whole, complete, the way it ought to be, then sin is any departure from that wholeness and is therefore a blight on what was perfect. These words are very weak and do not communicate well what I'm trying to say. For the holy is too high to describe and sin is too low to describe. But suffice it to say that they are totally incompatible. There can be no place for holiness to tolerate any departure from its wholeness. This is why the soul that sins shall surely die. It's not because God will kill you. It is that to live in unreality or sin, we cannot survive. For the universe was not created to accommodate sin. Unreality will die. Now, this is why sin needs to be understood as not breaking rules, but deforming God's created perfection. Sin is our refusal to live in line with God's holiness, and God's holiness is his perfection. There are many other aspects of holiness and sin that need to be understood, of course, I know, but this is too much to try to tackle here. Can we focus just for now on God's holiness as his perfection expressed in the created order, expressed on the canvas of creation, and sin as the horrible, deforming aberration smeared on that canvas? It's just a picture, but I hope it will help. And we tend to think when we say so often, well, nobody's perfect that we are acknowledging a state of normalcy. Nobody's perfect is true. Every one of us is marred. But what if we often end up meaning by that statement, well, whatever's wrong I've done or whatever uh, wrong I'm doing, it's all part of the normal reality of our present world and you should just accept it. Now, yeah, I know to some degree we should certainly accept each other's weaknesses and failings in humility toward each other since we all have our own version of them. We should be kind and patient with each other's failings. But that's another subject, being kind to each other. Here we want to examine how we all tend to think of wrong as normal. It is not normal. Wrong is called wrong because it's not right, duh. And not right means it was not meant to be. And not meant to be means that a cancerous growth is taking more and more territory in what should have been good. This is the meaning of sin. All sin is a deformity of goodness. All sin is a deviation from what is right. All sin is insanity, refusing to live sanely. 
the Holy Father cannot tolerate sin as the new normal. But because of our sinfulness, we easily misinterpret this truth in very bad images. We see us as just good people who tend to make mistakes, while we see God as some punitive, self-righteous, religious prig who just can't tolerate regular, normal people. And sadly, we often think that because, unfortunately, we may have been encountering too many people in religious circles who claim to know God and who treat people as sinners. Religious spirits of darkness work hard through the culture to make people believe these foolish things, like training us to think of the word sin as only a religious word. So when we hear it, something in us tends to put the word sin in a religious category. If we could hear the word sin and think not of religious rules broken, but of reality being ignored and insanity being enthroned, we would be a lot more accurate. God the Father is holy. Let's lay aside for a moment all the vast, glorious depths of meaning that word contains and focus on just this one aspect that holy means that God has a way of doing things that comes out of his perfection and anything that mars that perfection cannot be tolerated by simply saying well no one's perfect holiness intends perfection God is not sloppy God is not insane. God is not willing to allow what is sloppy or insane to just slide by. God may have many ways he could choose to do many things, but at risk of saying more than I can prove, I believe it's right to say that some things are so taken from the very essence of God's nature that to try to manifest it differently from what he has created is a blasphemy against his holiness. Two very well-known examples are glaringly obvious. The murder of babies or the use of sex only for pleasure. Both of them are enshrined idols in our culture. We as a culture have decided to ignore the character and holiness of God in both these aberrations of created order. And God will not adjust his nature to allow for that which is against both his nature and created order which reflects his nature. Killing babies is murder and sexual misuse of one another is adulterating, which means it is deforming, it is poison. To say God is okay with it is blasphemy. It is not a matter of God being stubborn. God cannot change on these issues. If he changes, he might as well cease to exist, if that were possible. If he altered any aspect of his design, he would be deforming his creation. He would cease to be perfect, and creation then would cease to have a place to exist, for God has to be and remain holy or perfect for anything to survive. This is not perfectionism. Perfectionism is not holiness. 
Perfectionism is not to be perfect. Perfectionism is, ironically, a form of imperfection. Perfectionistic people are very often hard to be around or to enjoy. They deform every good thing depending on just how bad their neurosis is. God is not a perfectionist, one who becomes unstable and irritable when confronted with imperfection. That is not what we mean when we refer to God as holy and unable to tolerate evil. I'm bordering on boring you by repetition in hopes of getting uh, across this very important point. That God, uh, let's get completely rid of the idea of God being some picky, unish, small-minded, religious bore who prudishly becomes upset by any point of view that is not his own. That has nothing whatsoever to do with what we're talking about. God loves and enjoys broken people. God loves us so much he intends to deliver us totally, eventually, from all deformity. God will have a perfect creation eventually. It is God's love which comes out of his holiness that causes him to want to be around imperfect people and to heal them. Jesus explained this well in Luke 5.31 when he says to the Pharisees who are rebuking him for spending time with, quote, sinners, it's not the, the, the well who need a physician, but the sick. I've not come to call you righteous ones, but sinners to repentance. If holiness were perfectionism, Jesus would not be able to be both holy and loving. He would just be austere, demanding, and angry with sinners. This is exactly the way religious demons want God to be seen. Jesus' attitude, by the way, is exactly the same as his Father's. If you see the Son, you see the Father. Exactly the same. So then, what about what we said at the beginning? That once something good is marred, it can never be healed or healed enough to make the intrusion of wrong as if it never was. What about that? Well, that is so. Can you think of an example where something wonderful and good was marred by something not good and became better for the marring? Well, you might say, well, I've had some issues in my life and I had to work hard to overcome them and I became better for it. And that would be an example of a seeming negative being what we call a blessing in disguise because it helped us become better because we had to work hard to overcome that negative. But we're not talking about us on that level. When it comes to the subject of God's created order as an expression of his holiness and of sin being the marring of that order, then we're speaking of the very fabric of creation. And we cannot use our own private experience with struggle as an example. Why? Because in our own human example, we are already flawed. So we begin flawed. We are not the origin of existence, only the extension of it. And it's flawed. And it's flawed because of our our wrong choices. A negative comes along that changes us to work hard toward a higher good, and the struggle helps us to improve. 
That is all good on the human level. But we're not here talking about a finite good being improved by a struggle. We're talking about a perfect good being willfully deformed in order to undo that perfection and make the deformity the normal. This is the nature of what we call evil. Evil is that which seems purposefully to undo goodness, beauty, and truth in order to destroy life. All of human experience is to some degree or other about hindering evil in hopes of preserving good. But the very presence of evil should not be. That's the point. Our idea of normal only operates inside the realm of what has become normal since abnormal came in and set itself up as normal. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm stressing it too much because I think maybe we all know it. But there's there's something wrong in the universe. And that something cannot be eternal, for God alone is eternal, and God is not evil. So evil is an intrusion. Evil cannot exist on its own. It has to have a host to feed off of. It's a parasite. God's holiness must be the final say in the universe, or evil will be. Evil cannot be reconciled with good any more than a crooked stick can be reconciled with a straight stick. And evil cannot be a force that is fully self-sustaining. By its very nature, evil must come to an end because it must have had a beginning. It is not eternal. There is life without death, but there could not be death unless there was first life. So evil is a deformed, dependent parasite. But there is death. Not only death in the sense of cessation of life on the physical level, but death with a capital D. That dark shadow that tries to hover over all good and diminish it any way it can. Harshness, cruelty, bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred, lustful misuse of others. These and all other such horrors are all the offspring of death. It cannot be overcome by willpower or human resistance. It cannot be washed away by anything we can produce. It can't be expunged by our saying, I'm sorry, or being told that we are forgiven. Yes, being told we are forgiven is important, and saying I'm sorry is important. That's a human necessity on the horizontal level. But as important as that is, it's not enough to cleanse away sin. Capital S. Remember what we said sin is? Not a breaking of a religious rule. What was happening in the atonement? Well, here we go. Trying again to do what wiser, stronger minds than mine have tried to do for centuries. But it is still right for every generation to wrestle again and again with these questions. We know in part, we prophesy in part, 
But I believe with each generation, a greater degree of understanding is reached as the Holy Spirit guides us into all the truth eventually. None of us has all. All of us have some. So keep in mind as we continue that I am grappling. I don't claim to have the answer. Still consider this statement. The holiness that damns is the holiness that saves. If God is not true to his holiness, he cannot be true to his love. Let's return to the word holiness. God's holiness is simply what he is. Holiness is not an attribute of God, such as his omnipotence or wisdom or eternality. There are many attributes, but only three terms are used with reference to what God is. God is spirit. God is love. God is holy. If God is to be true to his being as love, he must also equally be true to his being as holy. It is not holiness that comes from love. It is love that comes from holiness. The angels, or the seraphim, I should say, in Isaiah's vision, do not say love, love, love. They say in antiphonal awe, holy, holy, holy. Jesus doesn't call God loving Father, but holy Father. Jesus doesn't tell us to pray, our Father, loving is your name, but holy is your name. Now this is not a trite, shallow point. If God's love is divorced from his holiness, then love becomes mere sentimentalism and sin could be simply overlooked. But this would not fix anything. It would mean that the fabric of reality which is dependent on God being himself would be ripped into shreds, for love would want all the good without the true and pure to support that good. So all in the name of getting along, all choices and behaviors would have to be honored. This would be insanity. And it is the insanity of our present system, our present world. No, holiness is what backs love up and makes love powerful enough to save. So in the cross, we do see love at its greatest. And we do see holiness satisfied. But we must not, I stress with all my might, we must not think of satisfaction in legal terms, as if God is emotionally enraged against evil and is looking for a victim to take vengeance upon, as if he must have someone to throttle in order to vent that rage. When we say satisfaction, we mean that God has satisfied the demands of his own inner reality by not allowing evil to take up residence in the universe. He has allowed the full weight of the ramifications of insane unreality to strike, but he forces them to strike himself in the form of his Son. And in his resurrection, God has decreed life over death and therefore good over evil. God was fully present in the cross in Jesus.
man was also fully present in the cross, in Jesus. Jesus, as man, suffers the full weight of that horror, but it is in a way we cannot even begin to grasp. And when we try, we end up often falling short, if not even accidentally making really wrong conclusions. Holiness is somehow being satisfied in the cross, and love is then given a place to love fully. For out of love for us, the Father makes it possible to not allow the force of evil to destroy us because he has guided its fury onto himself instead. Now this does not change God at all. He didn't need to be reconciled to us. We needed to be reconciled to him. He didn't need to love us. He already loved us to the uttermost. We needed to love him. The cross did not change God's attitude or feeling for us. It changed the ability to relate to us, not as judge, but as father. For holiness is not in opposition to love, nor love in opposition to holiness. Holy love has somehow destroyed evil at the cross. It is no mystery why we run out of words when we try to explain all this. As Francis Schaeffer has said, some things are meant to evoke not words, but worship, not explanations, but wonder. Now let's take a breath here and consider what I am and I am not saying. I'm not saying that like a gunslinger who must protect his reputation, God cannot just overlook a young fool who challenges him to a, a duel and uh, therefore God must meet the challenge or lose his reputation. God is not an egotist who must beat everyone up now and then to maintain control of his territory. If that was so, he would have started and finished with Satan. No, God's holiness being his very being, it is the power that gives foundation to all that exists. Nothing can exist apart from the foundation of God's being holy. The moment God ceases to be holy, and don't worry, it's not possible, at that moment, everything that exists simply would no longer be. Though that cannot ever be, what could be was the creation of us. Beings made in his image and likeness who by virtue of being made like him would have power to challenge his being by refusing reality and trying to establish a different oppositional false reality as a rivalry to God. That was not our original idea. That was Satan's original idea. But by aligning ourselves with Satan, we end up being as guilty. God does not need to protect himself from rivals. That itself is a silly idea, since the rivals can only exist because God gives them their existence. But he has given them, us, freedom to choose, which is freedom to create or to set in motion those boomerangs I referred to previously. And though we can set them in motion, we cannot stop them once they are set in motion. And we cannot save ourselves or creation from what we have done. And we can't even control 
not only the, the boomerangs, but how the boomerangs interact with each other. Or how demonic powers manipulate them once they're set in motion. If God is to save the world, then he must judge the world. His holiness that condemns is therefore the same holiness that saves. In order to condemn the world without destroying it, he must come into the world himself and gather up the entire human race under himself as their federal head. And he is the federal head of the human race. This is why Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. It was as man that he entered the arena of conflict with the powers of darkness. And when he did, all the evil set in motion by devils, demons, and men was hurled at him. The entire fleet of boomerangs will all find a landing place and it will be on him at the cross. At the cross, Jesus as man will bear the judgment of God upon man against all unholiness. Without the shedding of his blood, there will and can be no remission of sin. I've read a great deal of the wrestling thoughts that have been written by great, wise, well-educated, and godly people over the centuries, and I stand on their shoulders to see what I can see, and I'm deeply grateful to them for their struggle to say what is unsayable. At the same time, some of what they wrote was influenced by the era in which they lived more than by the scriptures themselves. For just one example, if they lived under a cruel monarchy politically, the image of God as a distant legalistic monarch, far more interested in his own glory than in saving people from evil, may form their view of the reason Jesus' blood had to be shed. This is no commentary on the accuracy of Scripture or on the justice of God's actions, but only on the human misinterpretation of them based on the limited viewpoint of the writer as he lived within his era. Under a despotic ruler, it seems easier to see Jesus as the innocent victim dying to appease an angry ruler, but that's not the story. For at the cross, Jesus suffers fully as man. So as a man, he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is also revealed in other parts of Scripture that Jesus, as both God and man, will confront the intrusion of evil into the fabric of all creation. And in his own self, he will take it in and destroy its power. And when he rises from death, by the power of the Father, who was with him in the entire event, his resurrection in a human body out from death makes God and humanity one together forever, never to be separated. Jesus begins then undoing the effects of sin through the lives of his disciples who become his apostles and who little by little set in motion the the forces or the boomerangs of the kingdom instead of of sin. Century by century, retaking the earth, undoing the evil, destroying the destroyers, and restoring what evil has ruined. But 
It's not a clean, swift, happy unfolding of a glorious finale. History has been and continues to be a huge, long struggle. The people of God are a mixture of our new life manifested through much left over from our old life. Not only is this inner war seen in individuals, but in nations and governments and social and artistic and educational and political constructs, even the church itself, century after century, must be formed and reformed and re-reformed as truth lost to a former generation is reawakened in succeeding generations. But in all this, there is a progressive movement of the kingdom of God. Slowly but surely, taking nation after nation and moving toward the great telos, the completion, the eventual perfection of all creation. Finally, at some point, none of us can foresee, although we seem to make a cottage industry out of trying to figure it out and print books to prove our point of view, his return to the earth will accomplish something never seen before in the history of all beings in heaven above, the earth below, or under the earth. He will bring all morally responsible beings before his presence. And in consuming fire of holy love, he will preside over the judgment day. The word judgment means the putting right of all that is wrong. It is a true manifestation of final, real justice. It is the day of the Lord, the full manifestation of righteousness. And every wrong that has ever been done by every person to any person alive at his coming or long past into death will be raised back to life and will be made right. Every act of evil perpetrated by principalities and powers will be judged by the church. The evil of death will be destroyed, and all who have died will be restored to their bodies. Every agony of soul will be met with truth and love. And this great and terrible day of the Lord is not a mere 24-hour period, but a, quote, day that will take as long as it takes in order to deal righteously with every single wrong that has ever been perpetrated in all of creation. In order to reconcile all that has been unreconciled and to restore what is right. What will then emerge from this deliverance of creation from the frustration under which it has been subjected will be a new heaven and a new earth, not a diseased, ruined, covered over by mere legal fiction, but a transformed state of being that is better than the one that was ruined before it fell. He will not only forgive, he will restore. He will not only restore but he will reveal what he has had in mind all along. 
a universe full of freedom and joy and love where sin shall never be able to intrude again, not because we will be tempted by it, but afraid of what it would do to us if we sinned again. No, no. It will never be able to intrude again, for all evil will be gone, done away with, unable to return, not because we are so weak that we must be protected from it, but because we have been made so strong in our union with him, in his love and goodness, that we will be as free from sin and its pull on us as God himself is free. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. What that means is far, far greater than even the best of us knows. As the world seems to get darker and more insane, and injustice seems stacked upon injustice, and unjust, crooked workers of iniquity seem keeping to be able to keep getting away with their evil, keep your eyes on the cross. More to the point, on the one who transformed that cross into the throne of righteousness. Soon he will come, and we will know. God bless you all. Thank you for listening.